Hey, hey, how's everybody doing? My name is Christian Wagner, and I'm the Militant Thomist. So today we're going to be going over an interesting topic because there's been some recent discussion on Twitter um, about whether Protestants are heretics. And this is a uh, obviously very inflammatory question, one that takes um, some very well-defined distinctions and uh, the implications of whatever we say need to be brought to fore very clearly. Um, it's not charitable to hide the truth uh, for nicety's sake, but I have, uh, I found um, through reading, obviously dogmatic theology, that there's a distinction which is made between heretics and the children of heretics that I think is very helpful in this discussion. So I just figured that in this stream that I could uh, go over Hunter and his section on um, heretics and then the children of heretics. I thought that would be very helpful. But before we begin, um, remember, uh, if you don't know Greek, and there's been some talk about Greek recently, about how um, Erasmian pronunciation is superior, if you go to fluentgreeknt.com and use the code militant, you can get 20% off. Now, Fluent Greek is the best way to learn Greek. So go there, code militant, 20% off. And do not forget below your screen, you know, watching right there, right below it, you'll see the thumbs up and the thumbs down. Click that thumbs up and then uh, probably to the up and right of that, I think, if I'm remembering correctly, there should be a subscribe button. Click that subscribe button. Click that bell notification. Do not forget to do that. And then also, if you go down below that into all of those links below, these are very important. You should see one, patreon.com slash militantthomist. Become a patron there. I have been... I. I'm sorry if you're a patron watching right now, but I have been slacking the past few weeks, very busy past few weeks since I got received, um, and things slip past my mind, but um, if you go on Patreon right now, all the backlogs of PDFs that I forgot to upload, they are there. Um, I have a few articles that I've written um, for Patreon, just for patrons. Um, there's one on the Cardinal Virtues. And there's another one on Tertullian's apologetic method. There's a, there's a few more interesting ones that I've written that I just have uh, saved um, that I'm going to put on Patreon for you guys. Very sorry uh, that that I had uh, that I have been slacking. And then uh, in the next few days, we'll do a chill stream, which is as you remember for patrons only. So if you just go to patreoncom thomas to become a patron, um, you can get access to all that stuff. And much more. And then also remember, become a member of the Discord. Uh, links below. That's where you can talk to me almost every night. Um, while I go to work, I'll throw throw in an AirPod and uh, talk because I stock, so I can just talk um, most most nights. And then um, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, you know the deal. And then if you prefer podcasts, um, there are the links below for that. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, everything. And then um, I also print books. So lots of books here. If you don't feel like giving me your money <laughs> and, and you want something a little more out of it, uh, you can just buy one of the books I reprint. Um, and if you go to christianbwagner.com slash shop, there is a book list up there. So that is everything. Um, sorry that took absolutely forever. But we're going to get right into it after I check all of those comments. What is this stream about? This stream is about you, Christian. It's about you. It is about heretics. In the, oh, that's that just sounds, you know, that's just heretics sounds like such a dirty word. Before I begin, um... I, man, my lighting is, I hate the Marian apparition happening there. It's just the way the sun works. Man, I'll fix that eventually. I'm very sorry, guys. How much time do you spend reading today or a day? Um, A day? Uh, probably seven or eight hours a day. Six, six or seven. I'd say six or seven. But, um, 
it, it all depends because I mean, some nights um, I won't read and I'll just spend it on VC um, when I'm working. And then other nights I'll read when I'm working. It just depends. Um, but it varies. Less recently, uh, I've kind of needed to take a bit of a brain break. I've been uh, a bit exhausted recently in the brain. But okay. But first, heretic, it sounds like a terrible, dirty word. But all it means in Roman Catholic theology is we have what's called theological notes when it comes to certain propositions. So let's take, for example, we have the idea that, I'll take a simple one that everybody knows, that God has middle knowledge. Or I will, since it's the position I hold, God does not have middle knowledge. God does not have scientia media. That would be um, on the ranking of opinions, since the magisterium has not spoken on it, that would be a merely probable opinion. So if you deny that, I wouldn't call you a heretic. I would say that you have a less probable opinion. Now you take that, you go all the way up. On the top, you have de fide divina et catholica. Basically, divine and Catholic faith. So this is something which is contained in the word of God and is defined by the Catholic Church. So let's say, for example, the Holy Trinity. The Holy Trinity is de fide divina et catholica. So the opposite of denying that wouldn't be less probable opinion. It wouldn't be just some little like slap on the wrist, like uh, you'll, you'll get it right next time. No. The um, censure for that would be the censure of heresy. So those who deny the Trinity, they would be a heretic. That's all that heretic means. So you get, for example, you have um, somebody, you have, let's say, Eastern Orthodox. They deny papal infallibility. Now, papal infallibility is something which is de fide divina et catholica according to Vatican I, something contained in the word of God and defined by the church. So they would be a heretic. Protestants, they, they uh, deny uh, papal infallibility. Um, I'm trying to think of something else that they would deny, but um, you get the point. There's a lot of things which are de uh, fide divina et catholica. And um, it, it, so heretic, that, that, that is really all it means is in its in its formal usage and then it can uh, it can be divided um in another way is that you can have somebody who is under the canonical crime of heresy so somebody who is within the church who is obstinately denying one of those propositions which are in the word of god and defined by the church and therefore they are under the crime of heresy the penalty of which is going to be excommunication now we can make another division of, of that. Uh, we can make, well, not of that, but another division within heresy between, I'm sure, I'm sure many of you have heard this, between material and formal heresy. Material heresy, let's say you have your old grandma in the pew, and she does not know that the, the fact that um, the word of God proceeds as a terminus from the intellection of God. That is the uh, principle by which the word proceeds um, from the father is going to be the intellect. Let's say she doesn't know that. Let's say she thinks that's just metaphorical. There was one point um, that I thought it was just metaphorical. And that was a grave error. And technically, I was a heretic because that is something which is de fide. Uh, actually, now that I think of that, that is not something which is um, de fide divina et catholica. But let's just pretend it is. <laughs> For now, now that I think of this theological censure of that, I think that would just I would just be proximate to error. Um, yeah, I think I would just be. Uh, I think Suarez um, says that it would just be proximate error. But either way, let's just pretend for a second, just for just for example's sake. That would, let's say that's just what she thinks. She thinks it's just uh, something which is metaphorical. She would technically be in uh, grave error. But does she um, have a certain knowledge of the fact that that is something which is defined by the church? And in the word of God. Well, no, of course not. So we would say that she would be materially heretical. 
Now, the distinction between that and formally heretical is, let's say, her bishop hears her say that. And her bishop comes, and her bishop is like, what the heck are you talking about? You're wrong. And they go through all the formal ecclesiastical processes. And she is rebuked and still continues obstinately in that heresy. Then that material heresy would be formalized into formal heresy. So those are all the divisions and distinctions we need to make. But I think one of the most helpful uh, distinctions to make is that between um, a heretic and then the children of heresy. So that is what I'm going to be going over right now. I'm going to share my screen and we're going to get into Hunter's Outlines of Dogmatic Theology. Because this is in volume one, so I put the, actually the link in the description below if you wanted to buy it. As you see, very based editing skills on my part. So, oh crap, there you go. If you can see that, I want to make sure you can see that. There you go. Yes, you can see that. I'm going to put myself down there. Okay, so the distinction which grounds, which is going to ground this which is going to be really helpful for this discussion, which has really helped me understand ecclesiology a million times better and um, has helped me not worry a lot, um, about um, things a lot more, is going to be this distinction between the soul and the body. And that's actually where I'm going to start reading. And I'm going to start explaining. It's going to be on the distinction between the soul and the body. I actually first read about it. Um, let me see if I can find it. Uh, I first read about it in Cajetan's works against Luther, because Luther had a very interesting idea when it comes to excommunication. And then also another important place is going to be St. Robert Bellarmine. And then if you want the really stupid, simple one, it's going to be the Catechism of Pope St. Pius X has a good section on this. But I will, I will shut up and continue in this resource, because I think this does a really good job. So with the soul and body of the church, but when the church is compared to a body, it must be remembered that this is a living body for the church is not a dead corpse. Oh, I don't know why I said corpse so weird. Sorry. Now we know that in a living man, there is a material body informed by a spiritual soul. The body considered as being apart from the soul is dead, while the soul is essentially living. But we have not the full life of a man unless the soul and body are fittingly united together. So on this analogy of, I wonder if I can highlight. Can I highlight? No, this is dumb. Okay, but on this analogy of a body and soul, we have to remember that um, our soul is that form of the body, the vivifying principle, which enlivens the body. And then when the um, when the soul is separated from the body, the body is dead and the soul is also deficient in a certain way. So think of the soul as the life and then the body as the uh, material expression, really, of the soul. From these considerations, we are led to inquire whether there is anything in the church that corresponds to the soul and body of a living man. Now, the body considered as a mere mass of matter is equally ready for many purposes. It is the union with a human soul, which determines it as being a body of a man. In the same way, a society is a collection of men, but there must be something beside and beyond the fact that a number of men are gathered together that determines them as being a society of this or that character. There must be some end which it is proposed to attain by association and some spirit permeating the society and leading each of its members so to shape his individual conduct as more or less to promote this end. So that soul, so the really the body um, considered uh, generally in a society is going to be that collection of men. It's going to be that group of, of men. That, that's going to be the body of a society. And the soul is going to be that spirit which permeates it towards, towards that end or goal. It will often be difficult to put into words what it is that constitutes the spirit. And it will be sometime, sometimes be yet harder to feel assured how far it is partaken of by all those who in outward semblance belong to the society. Also, we often have reason to believe that the spirit exists in some men who do not, in a material sense, belong to the association. 
So this is very interesting. Is in a certain society, those who do not belong to the body may belong in a certain sense and share in its spirit. So these are going to be laying out principles to when he kind of drops the hammer on, uh, on how the analogy fits. This is well seen in the case of a nation. There is some principle, some sameness of spirit, which unites all men who are entitled to be called Englishmen. Although it might be hard to state with fullness and precision what elements are found in this spirit, regularly and in the bulk of cases, the possession of this spirit goes along with birth and residence in England. So a lot of the times, the soul or spirit of Englishness goes along with being born and residing in England. I mean, unless you're an American um, Anglican, then uh, then somehow you have the possession of the English spirit without being actually English. That'd be, I guess, being an Anglophile. And in a certain true sense, all in whom this material element is found may be called Englishmen. So even, um, so uh, when it comes to being an Englishman, while somebody may be outside of England, yet still have the spirit of Englishness and therefore be called England Englishmen, even those inside of England who do not have that same English spirit may also be called Englishmen, but not in the full sense. For there is little doubt that there are persons resident in England who are wholly devoid of the English spirit, who make to themselves an end diverse from the end of the English nation and whose action is directed to the attainment of the end which they have proposed to themselves. While, on the other hand, there may be persons resident in other countries who are full of a spirit which is, in fact, the English spirit, whether they are aware of it or not. On these principles, we can distinguish the soul and the body of the English nation. The external fact of residence marks who belongs to the body. The possession of the spirit makes the man belong to the soul. Regularly, the soul and the body are composed of the same persons, but exceptionally, there may be persons belonging to the soul who do not belong to the body and belonging to the body who do not belong to the soul. So this kind of reminds me, um, and I'm going to make myself big for a second. This <laughs> this kind of reminds me, uh, have you ever seen the, um, like the, I think it's like the TPUSA thing or I, no, no, no. It's the thing and it has Donald Trump and then the American flag. And then it's like, this has been fact-checked by true American patriots. Think about that as in an American context, the soul of the American, that a true American patriot is something which has that spirit and soul of Americanism. And I'm not speaking about Americanism in the sense of the heresy of Americanism, but you know, the, the patriotic uh, fervor, that would be the American spirit. But when it comes to the body of being an American, uh, that would really, really merely be, um, be resident and a citizen of America. Even if you aren't a true American patriot, you could be, and if somebody would uh, send me that meme, that'd be great. Just a great illustration. But somebody may um, may just uh, be a American hating lib communist socialist. Uh, they but um, while they do not have the American spirit, they are still resident in America. Yet they're part of the body. And then I guess you could also speak um, if you've ever met somebody from another country who just loves America. I've actually uh, surprisingly uh, when I went to Nicaragua, the only time I've ever been outside of the country. I met a lot of people down there who thought America was pretty dank. They thought it was very, they, they, they just loved America. Um, no idea why, but um, well, I do have an idea why, <laughs> because they're in Nicaragua, like the second poorest country in the world or something. But uh, no idea why they happen to just be particularly devoted to America. I, I don't know, but um, they, they did. And um, they, I guess, had an American spirit, even though they, uh, they were part of the body of Nicaragua. So we can we can speak in um, in that sense of dividing in a in a certain community, the body and then the the soul. Uh, oh, yeah. A, a great example. The other Paul, the other Paul, he is part of the body of Australia. He is not part of the body of America, but by God, um, the other Paul's soul and his very spirit is permeated by the American spirit. He just, I have seen um, the other Paul, he has a 
just a massive American flag tattoo. The other Paul just loves America so much. He is part of the soul of America. He just loves it so amazing. So amazing. And I'm just checking to see if there's anything in the uh, in the live chat. What is the American spirit? NFL, Disney, and Apple Pie. I don't know about the first two anymore because apparently the, the real American patriots do not like the NFL or Disney anymore. So I, I don't even know what the real American spirit would be. It's very, very sad. There's there's no American spirit anymore. Okay, and I will... I will uh, put myself small again, and then we can continue. Because I don't think his Englishness... I guess you'd like, say, like tea and like beans on toast and stuff. I don't, I don't even know what the English spirit would be. Uh, okay. In exactly the same way, we speak of the soul in the body of the church. The church is a society of men instituted by Christ and having for its end to lead and enable men to avail themselves of the redemption of the human race wrought by its founder. And this society is, as we have seen, a visible one. It has an external organization. Okay. There we go. When we when we think about we we have a lot to lot to unpack here. So we think about the body of the church. We see that it has an external organization. So what would that external organization be? Now it is by faith that I would say that that external organization would be to be in communion with the Roman Pontiff. Well, really in communion with those who are in communion with the Roman Pontiff and his successors. So that is what it means to be part of that external organization or body of the church. Now, what is it to be in the soul of the church? Because I'm sure you have met many people who uh, you, uh, you get the the sort of meme where somebody says, uh, as somebody who went to Catholic school, usually it's just going to be an absolute garbage take afterwards. But you have those people who write tweets that start with, as somebody who went to Catholic school. You have those people, and they may be in communion, um, licitly, according to canon law, not excommunicated, and they are in communion with the Roman pontiff through being in communion with those bishops who are in communion with the Roman pontiff. Those people, they are part of the body of the soul, mean the body of the church. Now, as they they may support contraception, they may support abortion, they may support gay marriage, they, they, you see somebody like Joe Biden is exactly in this situation. He is a uh, technically a Catholic in good standing. He is not excommunicated. He receives the Eucharist. He is technically part of that body of the church. Now, is he part of that soul of the church? Because the soul of the church, which as we defined, was that spirit leading men to that common end. That common end is to lead and enable men to avail themselves of the redemption of the human race wrought by the founder. It's really the salvation of souls. That is that soul of the church, the salvation of souls and the restoration of human race by following our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, do they have that as their end? If they're supporting um, certain things which are mortal sins and lead to damnation? No, obviously not. It is extremely obvious, although I can't be infallibly sure, but it's, it is supremely obvious that they are not part of the soul of the church, even though they are part of the body. So this is, this is very important to make that distinction right there. And we may even have, we may even have the opposite way around. And this is where it's going to get very important when we speak about heretics, because heretics and the children of heretics, schismatics, excommunicated infidels, they are all, um, and catechumens, technically, they are all outside of the body of the church. They are not part, they are not in communion with the um, those bishops in communion with the Roman pontiff. They are outside of the church. But in some cases, and um, it's uh, up to the opinion, uh, probable opinion, how often those cases are, um, I'm of the personal opinion that it's rarer um, but in some cases, um, there are those who, while apart from the body, 
may still be a member of the soul. Through ignorance, um, they deny the truths of the Catholic faith. And they are penitent for their sins and love God. They're contrite for their sins. They made an act of the love of God. So that is that is the that distinction that we can make. So that is going to be very helpful when we go forward to start to discuss the heretics and then the children of heretics and who qualifies as part of the body and who qualifies as part of the soul, because it is the soul of the church that has that intimate union with um, with Christ. So I'm going to continue down here. Um, but it is important to know whether the possession of the spirit is coextensive with the outward organization or whether, on the other hand, the spirit may in some instances be found beyond the bounds of the organization, while in other instances it is lacking within these bounds. In other words, we must inquire what constitutes membership of the soul of the church and who they are that are members of the body. So I'm going to continue to see who belongs to the soul and who belongs to the body before I get into um, heresy, heretics and children of heretics. And remember, I just want to remind everybody, uh, when it comes to Hunter, um, where is it? It is this book right here, which is what um, the PDF is right there. This book was written in 1893. So this is... Uh, you can you can say oh but uh but uh Vatican II and this is just Vatican II trash no it isn't this is uh, preconciliar it's a preconciliar manualist John Wesley is in heaven press X to doubt I'm joking I have no idea about um Wesley but I will continue Carl Rahner intensifies bruh Rahner no. No, just no. Okay, who belongs to the soul? From the explanation given, it follows without difficulty that they, and they only, belong to the soul of the church, who, if the question were now to be settled, would be found to have secured to themselves the fruits of the redemption, to have the spiritual life abundantly... I think I read that. Oh, to have the spiritual life abundantly that Christ came to give, to be partakers of the divine nature, as St. Peter speaks. For these only are fit to pass to that union with God, which constitutes the state of the blessed. In other words, the just and the just alone constitute the soul of the church. So who's in the soul of the church? Those in a state of grace. That's who's in the soul of the church. It will be seen that membership of the soul of the church is a present fact and is independent of past and future. He that is a member of it may cease to be so by sin. He that is not a member of it may become so by justification. Okay, so you can lose that membership in the soul of the church. Very interesting while remaining in the body. So by mortal sin, you are cut off from the soul of the church, and then you become so by justification. Exactly the same is true of nations. He that is now full of the English spirit, which actuates him in all his conduct, may once have been the determined enemy of England, and may hereafter again take up this, this spirit of enmity. It follows that there may be some of the predestined who do not now belong to the soul of the church, and some who do not who do now belong to that soul but are not of the number of the predestined. We have been speaking so far of the fullness of membership of the soul of the church, but it is certain that many who are not of the number of the just nevertheless are receiving something of the benefit of the redemption, for they receive grace which tends to lead them to justification, and without which they cannot be justified, as will be seen in the treatise of grace. These then may be said to belong to the soul of the church, but in an imperfect sense. So again, in perfect sense of the soul of the church, those who have not yet become partakers of the fullness of grace and justification, but are being led by grace to justification. It will be observed that there are no outward means of telling, except by mere conjecture, 
what men do belong to the soul of the church and what men do not belong to it. Neither have we any information beyond conjecture what proposition proportion of mankind belongs to it at any given instance. God has reserved to himself this knowledge and the knowledge of the number of the predestined. Okay. So again, just what I said is when it comes to judging who is in the soul of the church, it's going to be mere conjecture. There's probable opinions. Um, uh, some say it's more probable than many. Some say it's more probable than few. I think it's more probable that it's few, although I go back and forth sometimes. But it's going to be by mere conjecture and not infallible that we can have knowledge of anybody being in the soul of the church. We have no, we know of the soul of the church, but we do not know who is of the soul of the church. Who belongs to the body? There is little room for difference of opinion as to the matter discussed in the last paragraph. When once the meaning that we ascribe to the phrase soul of the church is understood, it follows, of course, that the soul is coextensive with the just. Notice the soul is coextensive with the just, not necessarily in all cases coextensive with the body, but with the just. But it is otherwise with regard to the body of Christ, and some of the profoundest differences between Catholics and other Christians. I would like to note, interestingly, that um, that this is a 19th century manualist saying, calling um, non-Catholics Christians, just to let um, who was in the chat before. Let's see. Prots are not Christians. Change my mind. Well, here is Father Sylvester Joseph Hunter changing your mind. Uh, profoundest differences between Catholics and other Christians show themselves in connection with the question who belongs to the body of the church. Also, this is a question on some branches of which there is not absolute agreement among Catholic theologians. We shall first state what is defined doctrine, then deal with the principal errors opposed to it, and lastly discuss some of the points which we have no which we have no declaration of the church. We have seen in the earlier part of this treatise that Christ established a society to continue his work on earth and enable each man to reap the benefits of the redemption which he wrought. And this society is indicated in the scriptures by various figures, some of which we have cited. We have then to, now to inquire who they are that are branches of the vine, who belong to the family of the great householders, who are the sheep that are within the fold, who are the subjects of the kingdom who finally are members of the body. To discover the answer to these questions, we must look in the Gospels, for it is in them that we read what are the dispositions which it pleased the founder to make. And it must always be held in mind that the matter is determined by his own will and cannot be settled by any speculations of our own as to what arrangements we should think convenient. We must see what are the conditions of membership, conditions which in the divine design were to be fulfilled by all the human race, and the fulfillment of which secures great spiritual blessings, which are lost to those whose cases the conditions are not fulfilled, whether the failure be willful or unavoidable. Following this method, we find that the founder required that every member of the church should be admitted by the initiatory rite of baptism. Okay, first, what we know is that all they're grafted into the body of the church by baptism. Notice, the body of the church by baptism. So, all of the baptized, or at least at one moment, part of the body of the church. The closing charge given by our Lord to his apostles was to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them with the rite, which then became a Christian sacrament. And the apostles acted on the injunction, as is seen in many of the passages of the Acts of the Apostles and of the Epistles. A condition of this baptism was the profession of belief in the doctrine taught by the accredited ministers of the church. So again, the assenting of the articles of faith. And they who had been received into the society 
retained this belief and continued in spiritual communion with the apostles. So to continue in communion with his successors. And in three elements, baptism, profession of belief, and communion with those who have authority in the church, especially by reception of the sacraments administered by them, we have all that is required to constitute any man and member of the body of the church. So uh, it's very interesting. Is This is a brief aside. I don't know if the other Paul is watching, but I think this was like two or three weeks ago. We were in VC. The other Paul was there, and I was talking to him kind of about this, and we were discussing it. And I asked the other Paul whether he was baptized as an infant because he was talking about how he could never be a dirty, dirty Roman Catholic. I was like, Paul, were you, uh, were you baptized as an infant? And he said, yes. And I was like, Paul, you at one point were a member of the Roman Catholic church. And he's like, that is as dumb as saying that, uh, when, when Muslims say that every infant before the age of reason is a Muslim, but Hey, it's actually true. Every baptized infant until uh, they are cut off um, are technically members of the church. I mean, when it comes to adults, it's almost instantaneous um, because uh, they do not profess belief and they're not in communion with those who have authority in the church. So the whole of the doctrine will be better understood when the following paragraphs are read and when we deal with various errors upon the subject of the body. Okay. So I will look at. Okay. I'm going to now I'm going to go down to the actual substance. Now that we have that body and soul distinction in our minds, we will be able to deal with the question of heretics and the children of heretics a little bit better. Um, let me just go down. Various errors. I don't think we need to read the various errors. Okay, yeah, the novations. We don't really need to hear about that. St. Ignatius of Loyola, the predestined, the just. Difficulties. Okay. <clears throat> Heresy. Okay. Here we go. There you go. Heresy and then the children of heretics. Okay. And then down here, it's our subject may be illustrated by a few words concerning the church membership of some other classes of persons. The first of heretics. Okay. What is the state status of heretics when it comes to church membership? A proposition is heretical which is inconsistent with the teaching put forward by the church in pursuance of her infallible authority as being part of the revelation which she has received. So notice, this is, so her, uh, heresy is going to be denial of a proposition. So it's first put forward by the church. It's going to be um, through the instrumentality of her infallible authority. Because technically, very technically, um uh when when it comes to your bishop uh or uh you when when your bishop teaches um uh he is uh speaking as part of the magisterium it's just not everything of the magisterium denying that would be uh technically heresy but it's going to be something which is put forward by her infallible authority and then it's going to be put forward not only put forward by her infallible authority but it's going to be put forward by her infallible authority as being part of the revelation which she has received. So it's going to be something which is de fide, so it's on faith, divina, defined, et catholica, and catholic, so on, on based on the word of God. So if you deny one of those propositions, then you are, by definition, a heretic. So I'm glad we got through that definition again. A heretic is one who, having been baptized holds an heretical proposition. So an infidel can't be a heretic because they are not baptized. And this also helps clear up how Protestants are heretics too, because in baptism, they are grafted in, in some sense to the church. To be a heretic is a grave misfortune, whether it be accompanied by the sin of heresy or not. 
there being no sin in this or in the, any other matter without a willful contempt of a known duty. So notice this is going to be the distinction right here between material and formal heresy. So if you don't have somebody, so this is good. He's going to call it the sin of heresy or uh, just heresy without the sin. That, that is how he's going to divide it. So if you have somebody who does not know that it's their willful duty to, um, I don't know, neglect the and this is going to be between invincible um, ignorance so neglecting that willful duty to assent to the article of faith in the trinity let's say there's somebody that just has no idea about that i don't know how somebody would but uh let's say they just have no idea um when they're given a bible and they're cut off from all trinitarian teaching they're just given a bible and it cuts off all the passages which talk about the trinity and that's what they're given they would not be willfully um con uh, they would not be willfully going against a known duty in, in that case. So that would make it uh, merely material heresy. All this will be more fully explained in the treatise on faith. Meanwhile, it is enough to say that in hope uh, that an open heretic is certainly not a member of the body of the church. For unity in faith is one of the properties of the church, as will be seen hereafter. Nor does it matter whether the heresy has come to the knowledge of one or two only or whether it be known to the whole world. One who is inculpably in heresy may belong to the soul of the church. So somebody who is in heresy can belong to the soul of the church. They can partake of the life of Christ if they're in heresy. But inculpably, or as we would say, invincibly. But it is part of his misfortune that he does not share in the general suffrages of the faithful and the other spiritual advantages which are reserved for the members of the body. So this is an interesting distinction that's also made in, um, in Cajetan when he's arguing with Luther. Because Luther basically said, uh, you can excommunicate me all you want, but you're just excommunicating me from the body, so it's, uh, it's no big deal. But what Cajetan responds is, you're correct. Um, uh, the church cannot excommunicate from the soul of the church. That's not the way in which excommunication works. It just removes from the body. But because as being part of the body and the soul of the church, you have a special communion in the life of the church because you have the sacraments and you also have available the thesaurus meritorum and, uh, and, and all of that as being a member of the body and the soul of the church. So there is a part of the special uh, life of the church, of the sacraments, of the general suffrages of the faithful that you do not partake in if you are not part of the body of the church, but part of the soul of the church. So it's not like it's just no big deal to be a part of the body of the church. It is a very big deal. As to any whose heresy has never been manifested outwardly, Catholic theologians are not agreed whether they be to be reckoned as belonging to the body of the church. So you have those who are secret heretics. Are they part of the body of the church? It is certain that they are subject to the jurisdiction of the church and may validly exercise ecclesiastical jurisdiction if they have any. But the same is true of open heretics. Notice, look at this, very interesting. This uh, meaning of the Vatican II era. He is saying, and I'm just joking because he's not part of the Vatican II era. It is certain that they are subject to the jurisdiction of the church and may validly exercise ecclesiastical jurisdiction if they have any. But the same is true of open heretics. So those of you out there, those of you out there, and there are quite a few who are saying, um, and I obviously don't agree that the Pope is a heretic, but the Pope is an open heretic, so he cannot have ecclesiastical jurisdiction. Look may validly exercise ecclesiastical jurisdiction if they have any, but the same is true of open heretics. Okay. So that the question cannot be considered as decided uh, by these principles. There has been no clear declaration upon it by the church, nor do the scripture of the Father speak decisively. On the one hand, it is said that he who has abandoned the faith is, has broken the bond that united him to the unity of the church. But it replied that the hidden heretic retains the outward profession of the faith and if pope eugenius the fourth and pius the ninth 
when putting forward definitions of faith, declare that all who think otherwise have fallen from the church. It is clear that these pontiffs have no intention of settling the present controversy. The chief argument on the other side is that the visibility the church of the church is impaired if anyone is excluded for a hidden cause, to which it is answered that we have solid grounds for believing that secret heresy will never exist in the church, except in a very few instances. The opinion that favors the membership of hidden heretics recommends itself to most modern writers. On the other side, we have the weighty authority of Suarez and Billuart. So there you go. There's a little uh, disagreement in ecclesiology. But the important part I wanted to get in is right here. Children of heretics. So you may be wondering, you may be asking yourself, hey, I kind of don't fit that definition. I mean, some some of you are apostates from the Roman church and um, deny her dogmas. So yes, you do fit that definition. But there are others who are the children of heretics. Let's say they are part of the Lutheran church. The Lutheran church... Um, um, had their heresy 500 and uh, I guess uh, I would would I was about to say 505 years ago but that's very arbitrary so let's just say round it off 500 years ago 500 years ago and um, there hasn't been uh, for the most part Lutherans in communion uh, with the Roman see since then so they would be classed not as themselves falling under that canonical pen penalty of heresy, but they are the children of heretics. So what do we do with the children of heretics? So let us see. A question is sometimes mooted, interesting, mooted concerning the children of heretics. But it seems that it is easily answered on the principles that we have been considering. So right here. Every infant becomes, by baptism, a member both of the soul of the church and of the body, and he retains this full membership until he do something to destroy it. So again, those of you who are baptized as infants, you were a member of the Roman Catholic Church. I would like to remind you of that. Get trolled. If in the course of years he comes to hold heretical doctrine, however inculpably, and avows it, a misfortune befalls him, and his membership of the body of the church is severed. And this is probably the case with most persons who are brought up in heretical communions. Membership of the soul of the church is lost by grievous sin and by this alone. There you go. So, we have some distinctions to make here. So, anybody who holds heretical doctrine... So that's going to be every single uh, Protestant communion. Every single Protestant ecclesial communion is going to hold heretical doctrine. I've never met um, Protestants who hold to uh, Vatican I's definition on the infallibility of the Pope, which is De Fide Divina Catholica. Never, never seen it. Never seen it ever. So all hold to heretical doctrine. Now, in holding to heretical doctrine... And notice, however inculpably, so culpable, inculpable, hold to heretical doctrine, you are not now part of the body of the church. You have lost that membership that you had in your baptism as being part of the church. You are severed from the body of the church. But there's a distinction that we make. Because membership of the soul of the church that is not lost, per se, by heresy, but only by culpable heresy. That is the sin of heresy. So only by that sin of heresy, which is going to be um, through a culpable assent, in knowing that that is the duty to hold those articles of faith, only then are you going to lose that membership in the soul of the church. And I think this is about all that I have to say on it. So I guess I'll take questions if there are any. I've been going on for a good 50 minutes. Word salad. Wait. Um, 
nerd. Um, Earth is not flat. Vaccines work. Stand up for science. Climate change is real. Uh, what else does your shirt say? We've been to the moon. Nah, dude. I don't think we've been to the moon. Not gonna lie. And chemtrails aren't a threat. Okay, nerd. You know what? Do I have a mod in the chat? I kind of want to ban this guy. Oh, no, I'll just do it myself. Block user. There you go. Ban. Okay. <clears throat> Let me see. Oh, was that the guy who was arguing with me on Twitter earlier? Bro, that's his that's his profile pic. He's the one who uh who told me that I didn't know anything about Catholic theology or Protestant theology. And he said that Protestants aren't heretics. So interestingly enough, dude. Interestingly enough, in this case, you are actually the heretic. So that is very, very suspect. So I do not see any questions in the chat. Um, actually, truth is beautiful. Uh, Sanctum, and I'm assuming you're talking about Unum Sanctum, talks about the Greeks, even though that had happened hundreds of years before, right? And did Johann Eck think the Greeks were heretics? I am not familiar with the personal position of Johann Eck. So you'll have to answer that for me. Is this related to extra ecclesium nullus salus? Yeah, I think it's harder. Um, and I, I understand. Well, okay, okay. Actually, there's a few things I would like to say about this. Um, it's a bit harder. Um, in the pre-Tridentine, because in the pre-Tridentine era, there were churchmen in good standing, including, um, I think, uh, Saint John Fisher, Saint John Fisher in like the 1520s didn't think the papacy was a divine institution he thought it was a merely human institution there are there were plenty of churchmen in good standing who had that position plenty of cardinals of the church plenty of council fathers who thought that the papacy was a merely human institution yeah that's right so when it comes to the era of Johann Eck, when it comes to the early 16th century, it is extremely hard when it comes to making a lot of these, um, a lot of these uh, affirmations. That's something that the Protestants actually get right, is that they actually have a lot of continuity with late medieval theology. They're just extreme. <laughs> they just take the heretical side um, after, <clears throat> after there is the declarations of the church on the matter. But things like the canon, Things like whether the papacy was even a divine institution. Things like these were not definitively settled at a council yet. So it's very difficult to make these judgments. It's very, very difficult. So, uh, yeah, you're, that, that might help with your question of, um, of Johan Eck's uh, position. And then Unum Sanctum, it's a, I don't know about uh, whether one could say that it was... Uh, it's very difficult with the um, the weight of Unum Sanctum. I, I wouldn't say they would have the markers of infallibility, which would be, um, which would class it as something which is De Fide Divina et Catholica. So, yeah, I don't think um, anything like that was even definitively settled until much later. Since you, since they, at least the church in their practice, saw it as licit for people to hold that the papacy was a merely human institution. Again, I don't see any other questions. Oh, um, okay, I don't see any. I thought I saw one. Mine? What's your question? Oh, 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 oh. I, I don't know how I didn't see that question. I'm sorry, bully. Actually, on a serious note, how about those who did not have direct knowledge about the Catholic faith, like John Wesley, even though he was anti-Pope? Okay, that is a very good question. So in, uh, this would have been eight, uh, yeah, early 18th century, 
um, uh, Anglicanism. So in early 18th, I guess it would be early to mid 18th century. Um, I don't know about John Wesley's exact dates. I just know that he's around like 1730s, I want to say. 1740s is where he was super active. 1750s maybe. Some, somewhere around there. So early to mid 18th century. So in that swimming in that water, would a churchman back then have enough direct knowledge of the Catholic faith in order to know that it was their duty to assent to the Catholic faith and therefore be guilty of the sin of heresy and therefore be severed from the body of Christ, I mean, the, the soul of the church? Those are very difficult questions to ask, and I'm not going to definitively settle that uh, today. I'm, I just honestly don't know, but I, I do know um, the conditions, uh, and I don't really know the applications. But it would be very hard. Uh, it is just very hard for me to imagine that somebody in the early 18th century who was a brilliant patrologist like John Wesley was. John Wesley was very learned in the Fathers. He loved uh, St. Ephraim. He was a favorite of his. And also, uh, they would study, for example, the works of Bellarmine. Um, that was very common. And a lot of the responses which were written to Bellarmine. So it is very difficult for me to imagine that uh, there can be that um, invincible ignorance present there. Um, but again, there are certain other miti mitigating factors, such as the, the brainwashing of the, the the propaganda campaign really of the English state against the Roman Church is yeah it's it's um it was very present and to deny that is to deny a a great deal of history surrounding the the English Reformation and then the post English Reformation era is there was a lot of um, propaganda that went on from the from the crown so very difficult to say. But uh, there's, I guess, a few mitigating factors right there about it. Protestantism isn't a heresy anymore. I'm going back to non-denom church, tired of all the doctrine. LOL. <laughs> I know um, there was there was the one guy um, who basically said, uh, uh, "Buddy, have you not read this decree on ecumenism?" Uh, you're just a stupid neophyte. You don't know anything about Catholic doctrine. Uh, Protestantism actually isn't a heresy anymore. Did you not know that? You're so stupid. I was like, come on, dude. And then just, just saw him in the chat, and he was, you know, a boomer. I Imagine my shock. Imagine my shock. Just, I am, I'm very shocked that this libcath just thought that the church could just change their teaching like that. Like, yes, the church just reversed all of its teaching and i was like just show me like literally just show me a document i i hold by faith everything that the roman catholic church teaches as necessary for salvation if you just just show me the document then i will be happy to assent to it i will assent to it because on pain of damnation i assent uh, i'm required to assent to everything that she teaches as necessary for salvation and he just sent again the decree on ecumenism and it doesn't even use the word heresy or heretic throughout the entire thing. So how can it say, uh, dude, Protestants aren't heretics anymore, and then not use the word heretic? I, I'm very, I'm, I'm just shocked. And then just the the uh, the um, utter um, pride that that came along with it because I was I was willing. I was like, just show me, just show me. Because I mean, there's a first, uh, there's a few things that I've slipped up on and just gotten wrong and people have corrected me on. And I'm, I'm totally open to that. Um, I'm not, I'm not perfect by any means. I'm still definitely learning. So I'm open to it. But if, if you're just not going to show me, then I can't learn. Okay. End the stream. I will. So I will see you guys later. Do not forget, become a patron, like comment, comment something random uh, for the algorithm. So all of the Protestants know what we think about them. And I guess that's all. God bless. Oh, wait, no, that's not the ending because it is Easter and our Lord is risen. Alleluia, alleluia.